Well, we are working our way through the book of Daniel. Daniel is found in the prophets. Daniel was a prophet, but unlike some of the other uh, prophet and prophetic books that we have in in Scripture, Daniel is is kind of a combination of of apocalyptic prophecy that we'll uh, see later on, and then during this section, uh, more narrative of of Daniel's life and events that happened to, to him. We have gone through the first three chapters, and today's text is Daniel chapter 4. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 4 through 27 this morning, so if you have a Bible, as always, I'd encourage you to open it up and follow along, especially since this passage is pretty long, Um, and then keep your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible with you, though, but would like to use one, you can find it in the chair in front of you underneath You'll find our passage on pages 740 and 741. I'm going to begin uh, with uh, with, uh, verse 1 in chapter 4, just to set the context again. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid, and as I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, the one who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. 
Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Well, as I mentioned last Sunday, verses one through three of chapter four uh, are, in a sense, the prelude of the rest of chapter four, but they are, they come at the end of the transformation that happens to Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. Chapter four is a very interesting chapter because really it is a testimony. It's a personal testimony of a man who has been changed by God as he came to know the Lord Most High, as he came to know the God who he before had known only as the God of Daniel or the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As I mentioned last Sunday, really chapter four is the culmination, if you will, almost of a story of Nebuchadnezzar's life. Obviously, the entire book of Daniel is 
really focused on Daniel. Daniel, well, really God is the main character, but from a human perspective, Daniel is the main character of the whole book of Daniel. But, but chapters one through four can, in a sense, be looked at as the, the transformation that happens to King Nebuchadnezzar, because after all, he is the only one who is found in all four chapters. And as you can see, just from reading through chapters 1 through 4, he, he goes through a dramatic change. In chapter 1, when we are introduced to him, when, when his kingdom begins, which is really when chapter 1 begins, Nebuchadnezzar is a, is a relatively young man, he, he comes to power, and, and we see him invading the nation of Israel. It's when Daniel and his friends were hauled off into exile as 14-year-olds, roughly. And when we meet Nebuchadnezzar, he is invading a land that he probably knew very little about other than that it was in rebellion against him, and he invaded the temple of a god that he probably knew nothing about and hauled off the vessels of that god's temple and hid them in his own temple and, and really just proclaimed himself to be king over that god, whoever that god was. And by the beginning of chapter 4, he makes a proclamation it seemed good to me, all peoples, nations, and languages who dwell in all the earth, to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I mean, this is a, a huge transformation of this man. And again, I believe this, these first three verses of chapter 4 were, were placed in the beginning in a sense because he's not only going, you know, reflecting upon what happens to him in chapter 4, but I think also reflecting back on the, on the amazing signs and wonders that God showed him throughout his life in, in what he revealed to him with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for example. By the end of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is astounded at God's signs and wonders, He's astounded that God could save men the way that he did from a fiery furnace. But, but at the beginning of chapter 4, he's astounded at God's signs and wonders done for him. And so now the rest of this chapter begins this testimony of what happened to him in his life. And it begins with him living a life of luxury begins with him living a life of ease. Nebuchadnezzar again began his reign in 605. It was that year that he began his three-stage invasion of Israel in the land of Judah. And his reign lasted in Babylon for 43 years. He died in 562 at approximately the age of 80. We don't know exactly when this takes place, when, when, when chapter 4, verse uh, 4 and 4 through 5 take place, but, but scholars seem to be in agreement that, that this time when he's kind of relaxing in the lap of luxury is late in his reign, that this is probably when he's about in his mid-60s, and he is 
has built everything he's ever going to build. build. He's uh, completed all of his building projects. Remember, he was a great architect and, and a master planner. He's conquered everything he's going to conquer. And he is now a man who is at the top of his game. He's ruling, in a sense, the world and without a care in the world. Many years, therefore, have passed since he saw those early signs and wonders that God gave him. It's been years and years and years since he saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fiery furnace. He's living the dream, essentially. And just like God did so many years before, he interrupts his life with a dream that shakes him out of this life of ease. As I thought about that, I thought about how God often does that. God often operates by stepping in to a person's life of relative ease and shakes him out of it. Think of your own life, Christian. Think of the times in your own life that God has most grown you in your faith. Generally speaking, I find as a pastor that when I talk to members of the church, it is when God has introduced a trial into someone's otherwise happy life that they begin to ask questions about God, questions that maybe they hadn't asked for years prior to that. Why would God do this to me? I need help. I need Strengthening of my faith. I I pray to God now every day for this thing that God has brought into my life. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Book of Hebrews says, for the moment, you see, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It was pleasant before the discipline arrived, but for the moment, the discipline seems painful, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Christian, do you actually believe those truths? It's one thing to say it, one thing to read it in Scripture, it's one thing to uh, preach it from the pulpit, it's one thing to hear it, but do you actually believe that? Because God is telling you that this morning. He's telling you that when you go through hardship and trials in this life, He is working in you. The trials and hardships are not for nothing. He is promising you that that when you go through something that seems painful for the moment, he is using it to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't have been living a more luxurious life. I'm sure every day was a day where he got up and probably got his favorite cup of coffee and strolled through the hanging gardens and looked over everything that he had built and surveyed it and thought, what a nice life. We'll see that actually next week when we look further at what God did to humble him. 
Now, if you were to ask Nebuchadnezzar in that moment, are you happy about the dreams that you're now having that have terrified you? And I'm sure in the moment he would have said no. I would much prefer that I would not have these dreams. He had gotten used to being king of the world, and these dreams threw a massive wrench into his life of pleasant luxury. But you see, these dreams were God's gift of grace. Because if it hadn't been for these dreams, he wouldn't have eventually sought Daniel, which eventually led him to God. The interesting thing is that because this is so late in his reign, it seems as though in many ways he has long since forgotten those amazing wonders that God showed him early on. And in fact, if this happens when scholars think it happens, then he's actually having these dreams after 586 B.C. When he fulfilled and completed his last stage of the invasion of Jerusalem, in 586 he went in and completely destroyed the temple of God. In 586, he went in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, wiped out many of its inhabitants. Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, by this point in his life, had gone back to thinking that he was the absolute king of the world. God could have allowed him to ride out his final years. He could have allowed him to ride them out in the lap of luxury, enjoying his life of solitude and peace and plenty. But in his loving grace, God intervened in his life. Even though it was unpleasant in the moment to bring him to a place of humility and bring him face to face with the God that he needed to be reconciled with. One scholar says this, discontent and disaster or at least profound personal discomfort, are very often the necessary precursors of spiritual growth. As long as we are comfortable and at ease in this world, we are not normally ready to examine our hearts and institute deep changes. It is precisely through the storms of life that God shows us who we really are, and more importantly, who He really is. We see in verses 6 and 7, really, I think that confirms that he's kind of forgotten a lot. Because as you see here, he goes right back to the well of stupidity that he went to early on. He, he calls back to interpret these dreams the, the same guys he did in chapter 2 early on, the, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. He brings them all in. And, and we ask ourselves, well, wait a second, didn't he know? He already figured out that these guys are a bunch of yes-men. He already figured out that these guys are, are a bunch of know-nothings who just tell him what he wants to hear. But that was a long time ago. Again, I'm sure he has now slipped into old habits, even habits that had previously burned him. Think of your own life, Christian. How many times in your own life do you sin in a particular way? How many times are you burned by that sin? And how many times do you say, I'm never going to do that again, only to find yourself perhaps the next day going back to the well of stupidity again. So we look at Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, years have passed. 
He's now in his mid-60s, and he has a dream now that bothers him. So he goes right back to the well again, and he calls these men. And we say, well, well, why would he do that? Well, because I think at this time in his life, he brings to him the men who tell him what he wants to hear. And so we see here that he doesn't want to go back and do what he did before and, and you know, demand that they tell him the dream first. I mean, he even gives them a heads up. He says, look, I'm going to share with you the dream. Just tell me the interpretation. And the text says they could not make known its interpretation. Now, I find that difficult to believe. Even if these men have no guidance from God, which they don't, I don't think it would take much just kind of reasoning, especially given the first dream, to figure out what this dream meant. Nebuchadnezzar shares with them, there's a tree that's grown more beautiful than any other tree. Its top reaches to the heavens. It, it is seen from all over the world, and all the animals of the world get their food from this tree, and this tree is stripped and chopped down. Tell me what it means. I'm not sure that it would have taken much. I, I probably could have guessed. Well, it sounds like you. Sounds like you, and you're going to probably reach hard times, and yet they all say to him, we can't tell you what this means. Now, couldn't or wouldn't, I would imagine, again, in light of the previous dream, that they probably knew what it meant, but were scared to death to tell him what it meant. They had gotten used to telling him what he wanted to hear, and he had gotten used to hearing from them what he wanted to hear. Now, you can see he's mellowed with age. They tell him they don't know what the interpretation is, and he doesn't order them all to be slaughtered. Instead, he just turns to Daniel. He turns to Daniel, and he says, Daniel, I know that you will tell me the truth, even if it hurts, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. We see that repeated again and again. Now, Daniel comes in, and I want to look here for a little bit at Daniel's reaction considering Daniel's experience. Daniel was brought to Babylon around 14, as we've said, and we're guessing he's probably about 45 here, 45 to 50, somewhere in there. So Daniel has spent the vast bulk of his life, and he'll continue until he's in his mid-80s to 90 in Babylon. For all those years, really since he was 17, he has continued to faithfully serve King Nebuchadnezzar. That has always amazed me. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, who took Daniel from everything he knew at 14. Took him a thousand miles away, never to see his home again. This man who gave him a name that wasn't even the name given to him by birth and kept calling him that name. Look how many times he calls him the name in the passage. Again and again, he calls him by a pagan name. And Daniel dutifully answers to that name. This man who, who has, by this point, utterly decimated the temple of God, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. This man 
who has made Daniel the chief of the magicians. This is the man that Daniel has continued to serve because God has called him and placed him there. I I don't know what kind of boss you have. I don't know what how bad your boss is. I don't know how bad your boss treats you. Now, again, we live in America. You probably have some ability to maybe get out of that job and find another job. Daniel didn't have that ability. He had to stay there and do whatever Nebuchadnezzar told him to do. Your boss, I don't know what your boss is impressing upon you. I don't know what kind of uh, ideas your boss has about reality. I don't know what kind of uh, training, sensitivity training, or whatever your boss has sent you to and demanded that you go to. Whatever it is that your boss is doing to you or impressing upon you, you can't possibly have a worse boss than this. No boss that you have has done what Nebuchadnezzar has done to Daniel. And we read these accounts We read these accounts of of Daniel that that he is having these conversations with Nebuchadnezzar, these these conversations interpreting his dreams and and telling him what the dreams meant and all of that. But but really, we can get the impression that Daniel's having these kind of uh, these these conversations of, of witnessing to God over and over again, but really, I don't think that's the case. I mean, Daniel's been there for years. Think of the day after day mundane work that Daniel has had to do for Nebuchadnezzar. Think of the things that that he's been asked to do and participate in that that he knew maybe would be something that utterly uh, was an abomination to God. If Nebuchadnezzar sent Daniel out and said, look, I want you to survey this land. I want you to come back and tell me how many square acres there are in this land. And Daniel went out and did it knowing that probably Nebuchadnezzar was going to build some pagan temple there. As far as we know, as far as recorded in here, in in all the years that Daniel worked with Nebuchadnezzar, he's been given two opportunities to witness to this man. Once when it was the dream of the the statue, and, and now this, the dream of the tree. And the rest of the time in Babylon was a daily mundane life of service to a king that did all of that to him. Now I ask myself, how in the world did Daniel do that? How did he, how did he last that long? And that's just Nebuchadnezzar's reign. We're going to see further that he has to do it with other kings there. I think he was able to do it, to be honest with you, because He understood that serving this earthly king was actually a means of serving the God who appointed that king over him. Now, did Daniel do everything these kings told him to do? No. And we will see that in Daniel chapter 6. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not do everything that Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to do. But you see, Daniel realized that God had placed him there, that God had placed Nebuchadnezzar over him, and as long as he was there, he was going to do his best to serve the person and authority that God had placed over him. And God tells us to do that today. Colossians 3, bondservants, obey in everything 
those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. My dad has told me that I don't know how many times in my life. Whatever you do, you do it ultimately for the Lord. You don't do it for the person, the earthly person that God has put over you. You do it for him. And if you always do it for him, you will always do your best for this earthly boss. We know when we get to Daniel chapter 6 that Daniel prayed every day three times a day. I wonder how many times he prayed for King Nebuchadnezzar's soul. Think about that. Three times a day he prayed. How many over the course of all of those years did he lift up this king to the Lord? That the Lord would change him. And for all of those years, he didn't see any fruit. It took all of this time for him to see fruit. Christian, never give up praying that God would change the heart of anybody. Think about it from a human perspective. How far from God did Nebuchadnezzar seem? He must have seemed a million miles away, and yet no one is too far gone for God to change. It's interesting, you'll see in the passage, it kind of goes by you quickly if, if you don't really notice it. But at the time of his testimony, he is now referring to him as Daniel. All those years... He called him Belteshazzar again and again and again, but after God had changed his heart to him, he was now Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's dream again consists of a massive tree, a massive tree so large it, it reaches to the sky. It can be seen by the whole earth. God has made Nebuchadnezzar great. God makes all kingdoms of earth great. He's the one who raises up kings. He's the one who takes down kings. And, and God has given all of this to Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful kingdom. It's full of fruit. It provides food for the whole world. This tree motif is used again and again in the Old Testament to refer to different kingdoms. In Ezekiel, we, we find it twice. In, in Ezekiel 17, the tree motif is used to describe Israel. In Ezekiel 31, again, another tree motif used to describe Assyria. And so as it did for them, here the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. But you can see how in verses 13 to 16, if you look at that, you can see how when this watcher comes down from heaven, in mid-dream, in mid-sentence of what this watcher is saying, the tree changes from an it to a him. Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Which means that here in this vision, yes, it stands for 
Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, but even more so it stands for Nebuchadnezzar the man. A man who in this dream we see will be greatly humbled until, verse 17, the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Now next week, we're going to be looking more at how God humbles Nebuchadnezzar and what his sin was. But this morning, I I want us to look at Daniel's response. At Daniel's response to this dream, because as I read his response, it It absolutely astounds me. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, again, look at all the times, was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. It astounds me because when Daniel realizes that this dream refers to the man who ruined his life, rather than rejoice, he laments. How incredible is that? When he realizes that this humbling, this incredible humility and and stripping of dignity, this sending out as a madman into the wild to live as the beasts is going to happen to this king who ruined his life and who destroyed the temple of God, who took him by force into exile, who took away from him everyone that he knew and loved, the man who calls him by a pagan name, who destroyed the the people of God This man who's finally getting what's coming to him. He's finally getting the vengeance of God. Rather than inwardly rejoice at this man's downfall, Daniel can only express, my Lord, may this dream be for those who hate you. And it's interpretation for your enemies. That's that's unbelievable to me. I mean, if that isn't loving your enemies, and praying for those who hate you, I don't know what is. Daniel shows immense courage here, too. He says, King, after being alarmed and dismayed for a while, and having Nebuchadnezzar say, don't be afraid, just tell me what it is, Daniel says, King, it is you. it, it, It reminds me of David being told, you are the man. It's you, king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown. It reaches the heaven. Your dominion reaches the ends of the earth. But you, O king, will be judged by the Most High. You, O king, are going to be cut down to size. You, O king, you're going to be driven from men. Your dwelling is going to be with the beasts of the field. You will be made to eat grass like an ox. You will be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You see, God let Nebuchadnezzar live over 60 years in rebellion to him. 
He let him live that way. And he could have, if he chose, let Nebuchadnezzar continue to ride out his life in bliss until he met the Lord one day in judgment. But instead, God intervened. Instead, with these troubling dreams, God intervened. He met him not in judgment, but in grace. By cutting him down to size before he died. And bringing his little kingdom down around him before it was too late. You see, friends, one way or the other, every single one of us is cut down to size by the God of heaven. You see, before we meet God, we are all kings of our own little kingdom, whether we know it or not. You realize, I hope, that you today, as an American living right now, in 2023, pretty much have as much luxury and power as Nebuchadnezzar had. I mean, you can't, you, you know, order people to be slaughtered by God's grace. But think about the power that you do have. Think about the fact that you can, on a whim, decide that you want pretty much anything that this world has, and you can have it on your front door by a click of a button. I told the guys at the men's group on Tuesday that I one day had a sudden thought pop into my mind of a CD that I owned in 1997 that I thought was great and that I had lent out to somebody and never gotten back. And I realized, well, it couldn't have been that great because I never went back and rebought it until just this past week. But I had, it fancied me to get that CD again. So I went on Amazon, found it for $11, and ordered it with a click of a button, and later that next, either that night, it was probably that night while I was asleep, but I found it the next morning laying on my front porch. And the guys in the men's group said, well, yeah, but you realize you could have listened to it instantly just by going on, <laughs> not waiting a day. And my answer was, you're right, but I don't like listening to compressed music. I actually want to hear it in a better sound in my car with the great speakers. <laughs> so by waiting the extra day, I got what I really wanted. A CD that I had lost since 1997. See, we have immense power and comfort and luxury. And sometimes we can begin to think that we are the king, the king of our own lives. You see, here's the, the irony is that there is only one king of our lives. There's only one king of the universe, and, and we're not him. Friends, God cannot not be the king of the universe. If he were to stop being the king of the universe, he would cease being God, and he will not do that. So when, when we sin, when we rebel against him and, and try to be our own king, it's a fool's errand. It's a fool's errand if ever there was one to try to usurp the king of the universe. The only thing we can do when we sin is rebel against the king. We cannot actually take his crown. He rules. He ruled Nebuchadnezzar and he rules today. And every single one of us in this room at times acts like we are king of our own little kingdom. And we are awaiting the day 
when we will finally meet the true king. Every one of us in this room will meet him one day. And when we meet him, he will cut down to size our little kingdoms that we have built. They will be shattered. Our kingdoms are shattered one way or the other. They're either shattered in judgment or they're shattered in grace. If you meet him before you die, your kingdom is shattered by his grace. If you don't meet him until you die, your kingdom is shattered by his judgment. And really, that's the way things have gone since Adam rebelled. Adam was created to be a king. We see this in Genesis, but he was created to be a king who ruled under the king. And Adam decided that wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to be king of all. And so he stepped out of that role of servant king and became king of his own little kingdom. Well, you see, things didn't work out very well for him. The king that he ruled was a, king, a kingdom that was now shattered. He lost everything that he had when he served under God. He, he metaphorically, took the crown off of God's head and, and put it on his own, and it didn't end well. Now, God allowed him to reap what he sowed. He died for his sins, but God met him in the middle with grace. God could have brought down final judgment on Adam, but instead he met him with a covenant of grace. In the midst of judgment, God made a covenant promising to reverse everything that had happened. And when Jesus arrived, when he arrived on the scene, he alone, out of everyone in the history of the world, in his humanity, kept the crown on his father's head. When he arrived, every second of his life, he said, I am here not to do my own will, but to do at every moment the will of him who sent me. He alone, in all of humanity, not Adam, not Abraham, not David, not even Daniel, ever did what Jesus did. And, and when we realize that we don't do it, when we realize that so often we play the part of traitor to the king, and when we realize that and we flee to Jesus as our only hope, then we receive from him his perfect record of sonship. It's amazing how much Daniel foreshadows Jesus in his reaction because Jesus came to a world that he had created and that hated him. He came to a world that ultimately hated him so much they took him by force and they nailed him to a cross. And what's so amazing when you read the account of what happens to Jesus, rather than inwardly rejoicing that they would finally get what was coming to them, rather than Rejoicing that, that they were going to receive judgment from God over nailing his son to the cross. Jesus could only express, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. You see, friends, if, if that isn't loving your enemies and praying for those who hate you, I don't know what is. When Jesus came to earth, the world met the real king. They met the king who had power enough to calm the wind and the waves, something that Nebuchadnezzar could only dream of having. 
But they met the king who humbly went to the cross to pay the debt for rebels like you and I. Jesus said that the church, the kingdom of God, is never going to seem like the biggest plant in the world. It's always going to be overshadowed by the kingdoms of this world at any period of time in history. For a while it was Babylon, then for a while it was Greece, it was Persia, it was Rome. Now it's the United States and China. For a while, at any slice of history, God's kingdom seems like nothing. It seems like a mustard seed. But Jesus promises that as time goes on, this mustard seed grows to be the biggest tree this world has ever seen. And Christian, when, when God in his grace, meets you before you die and cuts down your little kingdom to size, and when he brings you by faith into his kingdom, then you have the opportunity to be a part of the greatest kingdom this world will ever know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this time, so grateful for this passage, Lord. Thank you for reaching into our lives for shattering our little kingdoms, Lord, and for helping us to know that yours is the one true kingdom and that you are the one true king. We pray, Father, that you would continue to grow in us, that we may honor you as king. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for our final song, Praise the Father, Praise the Son.